email about that weird graph on page 27 yeah <laughs> it's great you get a lot of good conversation and yeah i think it's um, i think you can be really helpful welcome to reproducibility an open science podcast featuring early career researchers i'm sarah coming to you from lincoln in the uk where i'm an immigrant on the land of the people who colonize the land that i've called home most of my life but called canada Today, I'm super excited to welcome a guest, Nora Serres, to Reproducibility. Nora, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm Nora and a recent master's graduate from the University of Oslo in developmental psychology. And I'll actually be starting my PhD in the fall at the Ritmo Center at the University of Oslo as well, which I'm very excited for. Yeah, that's super cool. As a music scientist, I actually know the Ritmo Center pretty well. So that's an awesome connection. Nice. Cool. So this episode, we are talking about Bayesian statistics and registered reports. So let's get started with our appetizer, which this week is brought to us by Nora. Yeah. So this week, I actually pulled a paper on Bayesian statistics, which, as we'll talk about later in the podcast, I've gotten quite into throughout my master's thesis and writing my my registered report. Uh, And I really like this paper. It's quite a consolidates kind of the basics of Bayesian statistics and also makes it uh, digestible for us as well. And I think uh, one thing that it does a good job of explaining is this idea of a sequential design uh, with a maximal number of participants. And for all of us who have done research with people or requiring uh, time or resources, intensive data collection, uh, it's a way to set up your uh, Design so that your evidence or the data that you collect goes towards this uh, growing uh, or Bayesian factor or base factor that you move toward. And the sequential design essentially means that you are adding a participant. And as you are adding a participant, your data is being updated or your final base factor. So you're kind of um, putting them in the pool towards more likely for the H1 or the null. And um, you're kind of yeah, amassing evidence as you go. And I thought it was a great explanation for this. So if you are hesitant about Bayes, this is a great first step. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's actually, that's a new term to me, this idea of sequential um, Bayes factor. And my, my initial reaction is someone who typically uses frequentist stats is this like, you can't, like, you can't always <laughs> do one, you can't just add one participant until, until you get to where you want to go. But it's just a whole different framework, right? So mm-hmm. it means something completely different. Totally, and in yeah. In framework, you can do that. Whereas in frequentist, that's just like the biggest no-no. Or exactly. Not the biggest, but one of the big no-nos. <laughs> exactly, and I think that's that's something where um, where you kind of get stuck up on. It's like, well, yeah, exactly. Like you said, kind of. Well, should I really just add participants until I get the number that I want? <laughs> but uh, kind of as we as we've been. Uh, yeah, talking about a bit before this as well is that you kind of, you also have to get rid of your vocabulary of significance or insignificance. So you're yeah. not really adding until you get to a significant level, but you're getting to a, a level of, you know, enough evidence to call it uh, likely, essentially, no matter what, because you could go get enough evidence that it's most likely not the case or a part of the null. So but it, it, yeah, I totally agree yeah. with you. It's kind of against every every sort of yeah 
0.05 we've ever been. <laughs> we've taught since like undergrad psychology. But anyways, that was a lovely snack to begin with. We will talk more about Bayesian later. But for now, let's move on to filling up on sandwiches. Perfect. So for this week's main course, we are discussing Nora's experience of doing a registered report for her master's thesis. Yeah. So do you want to we'll start with that? With that, what, what was your project? And tell us a little bit about your experience of doing that. Awesome. Yeah. So as Sarah just mentioned, I wrote my master's thesis as a registered report thanks to my uh, fabulous and ambitious uh, <laughs> advisors who encouraged me that it wasn't too big of a task to take on. And mm -hmm. I'm really happy that I did. And so... Yeah, so I guess to start, so the, my paper that I wrote uh, or that I've submitted as the stage one acceptance was The Role of Dialect Variability on Mispronunciation Sensitivity, an Insight to Infants' Early Language Development from a Norwegian Contest, a Context by uh, myself, uh, Julian Mayer, and Natalia Kartagina. And so essentially uh, what we have looked at was actually dialectal variability. And this is something that is... Uh, really prevalent in Norwegian society today um, is this native dialectal variation. And what we focused on was mispronunciation sensitivity around 13 months of age. So um, to this point, there's been essentially no research done kind of below around the two-year age or 20 months uh, looking at this native dialectal variation and uh, what essentially what we used was the intermodal preferential looking design. So showing two pictures side by side and giving a naming one of the two items and either the items were either correctly pronounced or mispronounced. And we analyzed the looking behavior, uh, both pre and post naming to this to see mm -hmm. if um, infants accepted, essentially accepted the mispronunciation as a correct um, so to give kind of a little bit of an example from Norwegian, like the word for not is both ikke, ikke, inte, or itte. Um, and you can use any of these. Uh, and there's also some dialectal words where, for example, the word to think, or I, I think, is jeg tror, or you can say jeg tror, like o or u. Um, but if you switch this with mur and mur, it is the difference between mother and wall. So if you've got this like medial vowel and in one instance, it's totally acceptable and it's totally normal to just switch it out. And in other cases, it's not at all. Or um, using switching out a K for a V, like kuffer, wuffer for Y, this is totally normal. And um, it's quite interesting that yeah, Norwegians are quite flexible. Um, and we're kind of looking at at this young age, is this, how flexible is this or have they learned mm. how to separate out? So we used familiar words and didn't the IPL task and tested 99. We ended up with our Bayesian statistics participants, uh, which, yeah, monodialectal and bidialectal, which is quite interesting. So, <laughs> so essentially for my, yeah, for my project, I... Um, started kind of it's a two years master's uh, in at the University mm -hmm. of Oslo and for the first year they kind of set it up to start thinking about your uh, thesis and 
have the second year geared towards working on the thesis, but I kind of approached my advisors early and they mentioned this registered report would be something that I could consider. And uh, for me, this is really appealing. I, I like the idea of the challenge, but I also think that uh, being able to write something that I could contribute to yeah, the, the field, which um, was really an exciting opportunity. And also, I think I got to dive headfirst into um, what, yeah, open science is, what registered reports are, um, how to choose reviewers. This, this is like mm-hmm. a big process mm-hmm. or, you know, I don't have an ORC ID. How do I, <laughs> how do I submit a paper? Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was quite a challenge, but I think I really appreciated this process of, um, I guess when I'm setting up a a project you're really thinking through really thoroughly with the methodology and even from the statistical pipeline and um, what are you actually looking for and when you are deciding what data to gather what is what is actually going to be important to answer the questions you're asking so yeah I thought that this um, the experience it was quite a whirlwind I also uh, yeah did my thesis or I wrote my thesis and went through my master's program during the pandemic and so it had its own challenges and also I guess the the amount of connection but it really lowered the threshold for asking questions um I ended up sending emails cold emails to quite a lot of the authors of papers that I, I read to just ask them because I I was unfamiliar with either the way that they went about it or the analysis or how they got to certain numbers how they decided that enough participants was enough now uh, this was before I yeah dipped into Bayesian statistics but I think uh, just kind of going forward and trying. And I think if anybody else is considering going for a registered report, I think it's it's totally worth it um, just for, it kind of gets you into the mindset of why, yeah, why, what, why you're going about this research, but also how you're going about the research. I think it's really important. Um, and you're really you can't afford to think about what your results will be because you have to get to this stage one first. And so you are setting up your experiment uh, with, yeah, with the method in mind and not the outcome. And I think that this is something that really helped me because in the end, um, in the end, I didn't get the same results that I expected. Like I, I got a, a null result, like my monodialectal participants don't show mispronunciation sensitivity. And I did not expect this at all. Uh, even when we got to the max amount of participants, but like to me, this is peanuts uh, of my paper. I I don't care yeah. that I have a you know a, a quote unquote a null because I think um, I'm more confident in how I went about testing them, and I think this is something that yeah could be really helpful. And like that's the evidence, right? Like you you set it up in such a way that you could be quite confident in the result, mm. and that's almost I don't know. I, I feel like. I want to say, like, isn't that what science is about? Like, we set it up to test a question and we're looking for an answer, but, we're, you know, ideally we're not looking for the answer that we want to find, though we know that that's what a lot of the current incentives push us to do. Mm. I think it's a lot more interesting to ask a question and be like, okay, what's the best way for me to gather evidence for this? Exactly. And that's what we focus on. Yeah. And then just, like, see what happens. Yeah. So I, I really found that that was, that was helpful. And I think also for uh, doing a master's and now I'll be starting PhD. So that also has a timeline and kind of a deadline for when you need to get papers done. And um, yeah, you can't, you can, you have to choose kind of where you can afford to be picky and where you really want to 
yet spend your time finessing mm-hmm. the approach and it's uh i think that really helped as well because you just you're focused on where you can make a strong framework and not necessarily how you can fiddle around on r until you get something that looks presentable yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah though so we all so like colors pretty. and color packages and something that makes you look like your line on your graph is a bit more sloped but no i think mm-hmm. it's it's really i really had i felt it was really a valuable experience awesome i i my biggest worry with the registered report is is timeline i'm sure you've come across this before so can you speak maybe a little bit about how you manage that because same with like any kind of other paper you don't know how long it's going to take for the review to go through and if there's multiple rounds like how do you navigate that within the confines of a of a program that has a deadline yeah absolutely um i will say this is i'm still get a little i still get a little bit stressed thinking about it because i ended up so (laughs) as i mentioned you kind of have the second year of your master's to do your thesis and i ended up writing the stage one report and i submitted it the first yeah i submitted the stage one report june so kind of before the summer break before my second year and i didn't receive it back until late august early september uh and then it was kind of like okay well this is expected we're gonna get it back and then review but we got major revisions and it was like i went from using pupilometry to uh international or intermodal preferential looking design because i was introducing too many new elements and i think like looking back on it it was really great because uh they kind of the reviewers kind of had me narrow down how many new elements you're adding and this is really important but i guess all of the reviews and the revisions and the edits i actually didn't get the last acceptance um final acceptance before the end of February of my second year of my master's. And so, and I had like flyers and QR codes for gathering data and I'm gathering data with 13 month old participants. And and it's like a 10 day window for these kids to come in. And so it was quite stressful, but at the, at the same time, I had spent so much time preparing for it that it was just kind of like all systems go. Uh, mm-hmm. And I ended up, testing a lot of participants uh, between yeah, March and um, mid-April, essentially. And I had almost everything written up other than my kind of like plotting in where the uh, results were to go and then kind of some right. bullet points of, okay, well, if it went this way, this is what I would consider if it went this way. Um, but yeah, it was it's quite stressful, mm. but I think again uh having thought through so much like you're almost considering elements of a discussion when you are writing a registered report because you have all of these considerations to take in mind and and there are things that i would you know change or what i would look more closely in next time as are with all studies but i think um it was a crunch of a timeline but it also helped you evaluate like what's the important part of the paper is it um yeah, is it the reasoning for why we need this and how you're going to go about it? Or is it the actual numbers? And those are quite small, actually. And yeah, I spent a lot of time writing the script ahead of time. So this is something I think that's really important as well. And I used, I just, I made dummy data. Um, And so this was also really helpful because you can use this in the time when you're waiting for your report, unless they tear apart your statistical modeling. But uh, I think like this is also something where it's like, 
R can be really time consuming if you want it to be. And I think like, yeah, you uh, learning to use dummy data is, is something that really helped as well because you can kind of like model how, yeah, how participant potential participants could look. Yeah. That's awesome. One of the part of what you said was like super relatable. Like my, my master's thesis had way too many variables mm. and I like did not have enough space to test that. So it was just like kind of a complete flop. <laughs> like, Wait, and no one told me, like, I wish someone had told me Yeah. So like, you can't test all of these things with all of these different levels. It's, it's just, you're not going to have the power, Yeah. but it didn't, you know, I learned from it. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of wish that I'd been told beforehand but at the same time in the uk it matches is one year mm. so that really really constrains the timeline because I've, I've thought about it like how do i incorporate open science with the students that i'm going to start supervising yeah you know and i to me so far the only thing that i'm pretty sure i want to do is a um, pre-registration because mm. i think to me like that's sort of the lowest bar because you're applying for ethics anyway so you yeah. might as well just do a pre-registration yep but it would it would be Cool to try registered report. I don't know. So I've tried one once, mm -hmm. and it, it never happened because there was a request for pilot data, right, as part of the submission. Yes. So okay. I tried to pilot the study, and we're trying to figure out the the method, what we're going to do, mm -hmm. and we tried like five different things, yeah. and in the end, it still like didn't do what we wanted. So it just sort of like died because <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> we couldn't figure out how to actually test what we wanted to test. So it never got submitted. Yeah. Uh, so that was my first experience with registered reports. And, it, you know, it's not that I don't want to do it again. I, I absolutely plan to mm. do one again. Which is this particular one was a bit uh, disappointing. And I guess it, it doesn't be questioned the timeline. Because if you have to have pilot data as part of the registered report, yeah, that does I, require a I bit did of front not, work. Actually. You didn't? Okay. Um, but it was Maybe for stage one. Yeah, this was stage one. Oh. I guess it depends on on journals. And it might have been a request that I sort of read as it's better if we do it, so let's do it. Yeah. And it was good because then I could walk through a bunch of things and you know, to realize that this wasn't actually going to pan out. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's I, so I it think a good process. That's um what you're saying is like it's good because it kind of makes you consider yeah, all of these parameters, but like you're saying, it is quite rigorous. And I think that this is also something that um, is really something to consider is like, it is time intensive. So you can't, you can't just pretend that it's not, or you can't assume like, well, maybe it is, but, but I could just rush or not rush through it. But I think I've got enough evidence. I think you really, and for me, I feel like it was kind of blissful ignorance because this is the only paper I've mm. ever submitted and written a registered report. And this is kind of my experience yeah, yeah. now with, with publication mm. is doing a registered report. Um, I think that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, So, but I feel like it's blissful ignorance because it's it's like, <laughs> it was quite a lot of work. And I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do three of these uh, for my PhD. And that's not necessarily the case for most people. Uh, but yeah, so I think... It is in a way, maybe it's good, but it's also considering the timeline it's, it can be. But there is a type of registered report, I think, uh, where you can get it kind of rushed, where you can where you can apply for mm. a pre, some, it's something that is, yeah, with it, within a time constraint, you can apply um, 
for it for a stage one with a time constraint so i'll have to look oh, more into that know. yeah i might suggest it to my students then we'll see and i mean i actually just remembered we've just been matched with our undergrad students oh. who also have a year but i say now now is may <laughs> it's going to be published so now is may for us uh for recording time and so you know we we could if anyone wants to start now mm. and have like the summer to submit something mm-hmm. and then move on to to next year yeah that's again, essentially what i did i guess yeah 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 okay Okay, this is becoming like more possible as we talk through it. I'm like, how yeah. yes. could we possibly do this? Well, and it's like, you never know, but I guess I was one of those students as well where they were like, well, you could in your free time work on a registered report in the summer, you know, work on your edits in the summer. And I'm like, perfect. That sounds great. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to get hit the ground running. So for, yeah, I don't know how many, how many there are out there who would say yes uh to that but i think like opening it up i think um as somebody who's just starting it's kind of tough to know how to take the first step and i think for a lot of for a lot of people at least those who i've talked to it's like well they've had a professor who has let them contribute in the discussion and that's kind of how they've gotten an authorship on a on a first paper or something or first contribution or kind of been a part of this yeah, the writing up or being a part of a part of a paper. Um, and so I think knowing that there's more than one way to get into it, um, get into, yeah, that first paper, I think then it seems a little less daunting as well. That's what I, part of what I love about, you know, from the point of view of a now supervisor is that I, w- I would love if like these students first experience of doing science was to do a registered report. Mm. Like you're like, that's all, you know, you don't have to like, unlearn a whole bunch of other things yeah this is this is the the standard and it seems to have really benefited you you also talked earlier about how helpful the framework was can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so uh i would say when you're using kind of a stage one submission for the registered report this framework where you have to i guess there framework is where you develop the idea and you design the study and then you have to go through the stage one the peer review and then you're collecting and analyzing the data Um, but with this design study they require that you have outlined an argument for why this research uh, is yeah needed or why it's important but then you also have to outline how you will go about it what kind of data you were actually planning on collecting it and what it's going to be used for so they kind of require that every um kind of thread that you're putting out there in terms of a yeah data collection but also what questions you're asking um it has to be followed up like the kind of the string has to be tied with some sort of outcome or some sort of analysis and i think that this was really helpful because you are operating within this framework that requires you to consider um where you'll be using all of these all of these parts and also what's feasible and also what's required to learn uh, to get there um, when you're looking Mm. at statistics. And I think understanding, I think early, especially during bachelor, my bachelor's degree, where it was like, you can use ANOVA, you can, you know, like you're, you're getting all of these different statistical tests and you're kind of learning what they are based on what they're going to give you as an outcome, but you don't necessarily take the time to learn like how you're, planning out how you're collecting yeah the start points 
um, mm-hmm. and why that's important, how you tie it together to the outcome. So I think this was really important and helpful for me too. Is like, okay, well, if I'm collecting some sort of data on, um, for example, the different dialects, like how am I going about that and how am I asking because I'm going to be using it to analyze these kind of groups and these clusters. And um, that was helpful. And also to be able, I think one thing that I also was thinking about is looking at other academic papers for people who have written in the same similar um, field on how they've kind of structured it as well. So you have a lot of different structures that you can be inspired by, I guess. Right. Yeah, I guess it might help make it a little bit less less daunting. And I don't know, it, it feels, as you're, you're talking through it, it feels to me like it really forces you to deeply understand what you're doing. Mm. Not to say that we generally like mindlessly repeat things, but like I've certainly been <laughs> guilty of the past of being like, oh, that's a cool paper. They did a cool thing. Let me just do it too. Yeah. Without like really <laughs> deeply understanding mm. why. Yeah, you know? definitely. Definitely. So I, f- I feel it was, um, it was a really good experience as well. And especially for uh, learning what it's all about, I think yeah open open science as well this is also something where it's like okay well if you're going to write something that is going to be quote-unquote good enough or clear enough I guess I should say for other people to understand and for other people to use like this is also another step where it's not just you presenting your work but it's also how how would somebody else use what you are doing right now too and I think that that is something where maybe it's not as easy to consider like how the next person will use what you are outlining like how easy it is that so yeah I feel like it's, it's always it's hard to know because I always think I'm giving enough information for somebody else but then mm-hmm. there's so many times where I'll read other people's papers I'm like there's missing information why didn't they include this and like <laughs> I don't I probably don't either because <laughs> it's you know it's not really convention in some cases mm-hmm. and it's it's hard with that amount of detail but I guess that comes with if you share your procedures if you share your code yeah and those sorts of things become a little bit less of a concern like still be as clear as you can obviously in the paper yeah but if you have access to all the materials then it helps a lot yeah with being transparent and with facilitating applications yeah right actually that's a really it's a really great point you bring up and it just that is just like seamlessly you know transitions to uh, this paper so I mentioned I just emailed all of these authors and one of the authors it was this big um, meta-analysis they had done and part of their code I didn't quite understand and I didn't understand where this where these numbers were coming from and I didn't quite understand where what was written in the paper where that was where you could find that and in the script um, and so I just emailed them and we and ended up being a really good discussion and like oh, I just use this, you know, series of codes when I want this, you know, when I want this sort of graph to display these error bars or this like this kind of trend, um, but didn't realize that I hadn't explained that at all. All of a sudden it was just like, just hopped over to this random, seemingly random group of, yeah, lines of code. And and it totally made sense to them as writing it because they've used it before and they just adopted it in this new meta-analysis. And I think that that's also really helpful for everybody to understand. And I think um, you have much more experience in this, but I think like within this open science community, it's like, if it's not just for the sake of complaining, like I love critique <laughs> because I think it yes. it really helps 
it really helps to learn. And I think like within this kind of open source field is I found at least that the people who have been in communication with are much more open to to this kind of form of building up um yeah this resource network uh instead of yeah. yeah there's not i don't know if you could consider it like traditional pride but yeah it's quite um it's i found it's been really helpful i think and maybe that helps us being like a young or like just stepping into the field as well as like i i'm at I come from the perspective of I'm not sure, so I would love feedback. And I think that this is, I'm going to use this <laughs> as much as I can before I can be yeah, called absolutely. a so-called expert. <laughs> I, I love the advice of emailing the authors. Mm. Like that's actually really, really good advice. I doesn't occur to me sometimes and yeah. you should do that more. Like we we're here to talk to each other, right? That's what that's what papers are, and that's what you would you know hope think. I don't know. I, I feel like that's what the community of scientists is. We're here mm-hmm. to to talk to each other, build off of each other, work together. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk to each other. Not that I you know particularly want a whole lot more emails, <laughs> just in terms of workload. But I think yeah. that that's the more fun emails, the more interesting things to uh, to get in your inbox. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Well, I guess when we're on this topic and maybe it's maybe it's a I don't know if I can say generational, but I think it's also like maybe more emails are not more fun. But I think like lowering the threshold for, OK, well, I, I'm actually walking to work at this point. So if you have a question on my paper, we can just chat about it, you know, on on a phone call or call me between mm-hmm. this time and this time. And I know it's not always easy to say you're going to be open for virtual office hours, but I think um it kind of makes you feel closer we had discussed this kind of when you've only seen somebody's name as an author on a paper and you meet them in real life speaking at a conference and it's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing it's like when you're young and you see your teacher at the grocery store it's like why do you exist outside of the realms of the classroom like this is insane so (laughs) i think um yeah understanding that there's there are also people behind these scientific arguments as well it's kind of kind of fun to yeah maybe I email more and to get advice because as as people have written papers ourselves like we have ideas and thoughts and and words and conversations beyond just the paragraphs in our in our articles that we write and so so does everyone else then exactly yeah it'd, it'd be really nice to just in general lower that barrier to access to academia mm. right to just generally invite more conversation yeah maybe we can I don't know, be more explicit about having our inboxes open to that I mean, it's something i can put on like on my social media or something mm. yeah to yeah to lower that barrier because i think there's definitely an element of uh i don't know but inferiority is that the right word of like ooh, should mm. i like bother this person they're like this really big famous person and like do they have time for me and should i really (laughs) email them it's like yeah why not oh yeah the worst that can happen is that nothing you get nothing back (laughs) but like i think in most cases Mm. everyone that i've heard talk about this says like actually i love this kind of question like please talk to me i love talking about my work and like which one of us doesn't love to talk about (laughs) our work (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and i think it's and it's a really awesome opportunity as well to, like you were saying, get to get to know somebody as well and how how they think and how they talk. And 
and just learning from each other i think is really can be really helpful like you know shout out shout out a twitter like feeling like ranting about beijing statistics like uh, you know dm and we could talk about it you know and then you just you end up having this more open conversation as well and i think it's, it can be helpful as well or just asking when you have a question i think instead of waiting until it's the right time or you've got enough of a enough of a background to ask this question i think mm-hmm. so yes i got good at writing emails during the pandemic asking questions saying i really don't know exactly how to ask this question but i see in your script mm. something that i don't understand could you please explain it to me and i think that yeah i i felt a bit foolish writing the email but i got an answer so <laughs> i guess i feel valid yeah. on that I mean, I think if I got a question like that, it'd be like, someone read my work? (laughs) (laughs) Someone's actually interested? Awesome. You read page 27? Of course I would want to engage with that person. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like a form of flattery in academia. I was like, oh, wow. I don't know, because it it feels like, I don't have that many papers out, but they're just like out in the void. I I don't know who Hmm. reads them or engages with them. So it feels like what I do has like no impact. Mm. But I don't know. Yeah, and, and right. I There's think no way of knowing. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really interesting thing that you say too. It is kind of maybe a topic for a different podcast. So like, how do you feel about work just floating there, and you're not exactly sure about you know how it's being received and how you can how you can look more about yeah the reception of that. So I think, but yeah, it was. I felt I had a really. If there's anything I can give advice to, it is to just yeah email about that weird graph on page 27 yeah (laughs) it's great you get a lot of good conversation and yeah i think it's um i think you can be really helpful as well so now we're proper full of new knowledge and awesome advice time to wash it down now with some tea and spill the tea nora what do you want to rant about yes well, I would love a cup of tea, but I also think that Bayesian statistics are awesome. Uh, and yeah, this is one thing that I really learned through my paper as well, is adopting Bayesian statistics. Um, thanks to an email from one of my advisors who had gone to had gone to a talk and said, hey, what, what's this Bayesian statistics thing? Maybe we can just apply it. Um, and so I, I went through. So, <laughs> so I quickly learned a lot of Bayesian statistics and um, I'm by no means an expert but I can in addition to that paper I mentioned at the very beginning um, I think I've sent a couple of yeah resources to Sarah can put in the show notes but it's um, Wagenmachers is has this great blog and essentially Bayesian statistics is not what we or I guess what he talks about is it's kind of Bayesian inference or this Bayesian statistics is, is common ex- common sense expressed in numbers. And so we are looking at two what he calls kind of rival accounts. And this is the H1 in the null. Um, and what you're looking for with this like um, learning cycle kind of within Bayesian statistics is you are doing deduction and induction. So you have like your prior knowledge about the world and then you make a prediction from this. You're gathering the data and you're looking at kind of this, how that data lines up with your prediction, you adjust your new uh, base of knowledge based on this. So say you've got, yeah, you've got kind of a a clump of, you have where you thought your evidence would lie. 
and then you gather this data and you get this clump of evidence that's maybe a bit to the left if you're looking at a horizontal timeline or a line um then you kind of update where you expect new data to be if all of this prior data has come in so you're it's the cyclical process where you're always updating mm -hmm. So kind of like what we're talking about where you can't just add data until you get a significant number. This is kind of the reasoning behind that is where you're just adding more data to give you more, more evidence, not necessarily towards one place. Um, as I mentioned briefly before, my monodialectal mono participants, they I ended up getting kind of anecdotal evidence for the null. So I actually ended up most of my participants having evidence to support the null than I expected and that's just where they ended up so the more participants I added the closer to the null they got <laughs> so mm -hmm. it doesn't actually lead you to yeah to prevalence here but I I think it's um what's really I really love about Bayesian statistics as well is that you are you're constantly updating but you're also looking at um with this sequential base when you're constantly updating a lot of the designs use a maximal n so it's not a power analysis it's a, for example in my paper it's set to 60 this is i used it on based on some previous papers that it's at the maximal n to 60 as well participants um and at this point you've got yeah you've got quite a lot of evidence to either support or not support but um this is really helpful when for example in my study i was uh, testing yeah, 13-month-old uh, participants and this in a really strict time window and it's um, you don't want to have to test more participants than you need to. And so this is really helpful when you are like, yeah, you're, you've only got a certain amount. And actually, for the reverse, I only had to test 20 participants for my biodialectal infants. And you'd think, how can you test 20 participants and this is enough? Like this would never be enough in a power analysis, but all this evidence was just so strongly um yeah pointing towards the bayesian factor and it was high above the inference criteria and so you're also able to stop earlier which is something that i think saves you yeah. time and resources where if the evidence shows kind of you know like if you not necessarily in poking a pizza but back to a pizza analogy um but it's kind of like if you if you order if you say you know cheese pizza and you get a cheese pizza and you order you know, you say this three times and it's correct every time. Like, are you going to order a fourth just because you need to be proven that you're going to get cheese when you say cheese? Like, uh, you're at some point you have enough to show that it's most likely yeah. going to be the case. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I guess what Mbagamakrasi sometimes says, like the level of surprise is kind of what is adjusting this. So like if you're, if it's kind of on par with what you're thinking, it's also gathering evidence to be within this same, yeah, the same hypothesis where it is so um what i also think is really interesting is um talking about i guess i've mentioned this as well too um that you have the weight of a null hypothesis where there isn't significance or insignificance it's just where the evidence lies and i think that this can kind of help us to restructure what we're thinking about when we're thinking about, well, where, what are my results? Are they, it's not necessarily that they're significant or insignificant. You kind of see where the, where the data points fall essentially. And then this is where mm -hmm. you, this is what you've got in the end, instead of looking if they are heading one way or another. Um, I think this is, yeah, I think this is really powerful as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I don't, I don't know how to make Bayesian work, Bayesian statistics more convincing, other than the fact that now there's Bayes packages on R, so you don't have to write the script yourself. Yeah. My script will be up on the OSF page. Uh, so I think, yeah, and it's a Bayesian t-test. It's quite, it's quite uh, simple and elegant in terms of like R scripts. So yeah, Bayesian mm. statistics, relative predictive performance. It's not frequentist. No, I understand also from it is that Bayesian allows you to make really specific predictions mm. and then test all those specific predictions. Mm -hmm. Okay, look at this hypothesis. Does it match the data? how much what's the base factor for that let's try a different hypothesis how does it match with the data and so you can sort of look look around and modify your your prediction and just see how well it fits yeah with your data exactly. which is something that is like again a bit not known frequentist you don't, you don't do that because yeah. multiple testing is a problem right that's just not a problem in phase so like I, i'm super convinced of it. Yeah. I was convinced years ago honestly <laughs> And I've just not gotten around to implementing it. So this is giving me like that extra, an extra kick of like trying to, to do that again, to, yeah. to implement Bayesian stats in, in future work. I don't really have anything started up yet mm. in this new job, but there will be, so I, can, <laughs> I can think about, yeah, I learn, learning and yeah. then applying well, the implementation. I, I think I have a pretty good grasp on, on the theory mm. uh, of like why and how it works. And yeah, I'm, I'm totally convinced. I, cool. For me, it was um, Understanding Psychology as a Science by Zoltan Deans that mm -hmm. like really cemented that for me, where I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah this makes total sense. Yeah. Cool. I'm on board. <laughs> Bates. Yeah. That's uh, actually in my previous life, I worked as a healthcare consultant and we did, um, yeah, there were, we had some statisticians who used Bayesian statistics and I kind of, it was one of those things that was, it made total sense and I was so convinced, but I was just not ready to dive into that world and then little did I know that <laughs> this is yeah. where I would end up so I it's, I think it's yeah it's great it's really interesting and like you were saying too is where it's not necessarily that you have this idea and then you get data and it's significant or it's not but it's also it's looking at like well what about this hypothesis what about this model of it's kind of like what about this model of our understanding of the world okay here's our data how well does that fit with those two so you're you're essentially like, you know, those gel slides where you can cover uh, lights to make different colors. It's kind of like, well, yeah. how well do these fit together? How how much did this match up with what you were expecting about the world and to see the world through and how well? Yeah. So I think it's it's definitely much more statistics-y, I guess, if you can say this. Um, but it, it kind of forces you to also get a better grasp and understanding about what statistics actually is as well I feel um because of this yeah you have to understand the model from which you are uh, for which you are applying the, mm -hmm. the data to. I find it a lot more intuitive because mm. this idea of like oh that hypothesis how about this other worldview how about this other worldview let's try this other model like why why couldn't you do that right mm. like it's just it's it's unintuitive to say that like nope you can only try one thing and that is it because mm. that's the way that frequentness is set up. It's long-term probabilities. Yeah. And because of the error rates within a family, like you, you can't, but mm. that seems like the intuitive thing to do in everyday life. Yeah. If you have this evidence and you go, okay, does this explain it? No. Okay. Let's try this other thing. Let's try this other thing. Like, yeah, it, Bayesian is just so much more intuitive. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so much more sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely 
suggest checking out the Bayesian Spectacles blog. I, yeah, I really am a big fan. So I think it's it's really, really something that I am ranting about in the best way. <laughs> yeah. Try Bayes. All right. So you heard it from us listeners. <laughs> Your reproducibility. <laughs> I hope we've convinced you. Everyone should be doing Bayesian stats. Go. Yes. <laughs> exactly. All right, that was a delicious spot of tea. So let's balance out this whole meal with some delectable desserts. What I wanted to bring this week was something that I learned at a SIPS conference. It was last year, so SIPS 2022. I had to think about mm-hmm. that for a second. <laughs> it's already last year. <laughs> it's fine, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, in Victoria, I learned that you can appeal rejections from journals and from conferences. It never occurred to me that you can appeal something like that. Mm-hmm. To me, rejection was always just like, oh, well, that's it. They said no. Mm-hmm. But that's it, it blew my mind. And I actually have used it for the first time recently. A paper was rejected from a conference and some of the feedback was was just it wasn't generous like it 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 was a mis a bad reading bad faith reading of our paper and so we wrote to the conference organizers and we appealed on that basis we said like look we think that this is in bad faith this is only an abstract what you're extrapolating isn't founded or what the reviewers extrapolating isn't founded and this is is excluding a critical view because it it was like talking about ideology which can be scary <laughs> when you're challenging the status quo sometimes you know you tend to get shut out um you know on the basis of exclusion as well and they accepted the appeal which is awesome yeah so we now get to present this work oh congrats so we're really glad that the organizers were accepting of this this appeal and you know heard our argument and actually mm-hmm. responded in a, in a positive way yeah. and from what i hear when you also appeal to journal editors, rejections and things, you have a good chance of the decision being reversed. Mm. So it's worth a try. That's a huge, I feel like that is a untapped piece of, you know, knowledge out there. That's just like you were saying when it blew your mind where it's, you're, yeah, when you when you hear no, it's kind of like, all right, well, I guess I gave it a shot, you know? But I think um, what you were what you were explaining too is that, when you are sending an appeal, it also helps you to kind of revise, well, well, I think my work is important and, you know, like sharing your work. And especially I think when you have something like ideology and challenging the status quo, it's like, well, that's exactly the opportunity where it needs to be shared to more than when you were saying, you know, you send out a paper into the void. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is these are the types of papers that are are challenging and important. And I think that when you're appealing rejections, I think... Um, yeah, we can all learn from you and be a little bit more bold and and saying, well, maybe if it's a no, <laughs> because it, it might be. And I and like you were saying, and it's a, you know, having a bad faith reading, and and everybody can experience that from both sides as well. And I think it's yeah. it's good for us to know, you know, and remember that we can appeal it, especially if it's something we are passionate about, wanting to share, um, and also for reviewers and understanding that, like, oh yeah, maybe I didn't think about this or consider this point from a from an author when I was reviewing this as well so 
I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, that's a huge, that's a good slice of cake right there. <laughs> yeah, that was a great learning for me. I think it, it just occurred to me about what, what funding. I, I don't think you could appeal a funding decision. <laughs> I think that one's a little bit harder. Give more money. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> tried. Um, but I suspect that would be a lot more difficult. Whereas journals or conferences, it's often colleagues. It's it's a bit more collegial, just mm-hmm. in, in general, I think. <laughs> You feel like do we have we covered everything? Anything else that you want to to raise? Uh, no, I I guess if I yeah, our final sum up, I would say that um, registered reports are they are time intensive and they are lengthy, and so I think like also respecting that it will take a lot of time too, because I think. For for example, your master's students who maybe only have a year and having it be a flop, like having having the experience of writing a flop is also not amazing either. Um, so I think, but I think that there are a lot more motivated younger people out there as well. And like being given this opportunity, I think it was like really a motivator for me to also continue. Um, mm. And that going into like I feel more prepared starting a PhD and also yeah considering like what steps I have to do when I'm thinking about an outline for my next three four years is like is will this be a part of it like taking time to you know post all my at least pre-registrations is is something where I'm planning on doing and I think that this is really helpful just for like a mindset moving forward as well yeah Awesome. Thank you so, so much for coming on to our podcast and sharing your experience. I think we're going to take a lot from what you've shared. Lots of great advice in there as well. Um, if anyone wants to follow you more, what where can they find you online? Ooh, uh, I am more of a follower than a tweeter on Twitter, <laughs> uh, sure. but I'm just at, at Nora Saris and on Instagram as well at Nora Saris. There you can see more about my uh, in my quote unquote free time. I uh, compete in ultra trail running and have chickens. So if you are interested in that, uh, maybe I'll do some like Bayesian statistics on color of eggs. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, so if you are looking at some yeah some mountain inspired academia, then uh, head over to my Instagram. And if you're looking into more so into more uh, yeah straight science when i would go for twitter <laughs> but both at nora wonderful Cyrus. wonderful thank you yes so you can follow reproducibility on twitter at reproducibility um if you want to follow me i'm at sarah underscore sove or at madame yyt m-a-d-o-m-y-y-t on tiktok where i'm talking about my day-to-day life at work That wraps our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Nora, for coming on. See you next time. Bye. Thanks, Sarah, for hosting a good platform. Mm